Nutrition Care Guidelines. We spoke about these at the Intensive Care Society State of the Art Conference 2016. What did we say? Let's find out. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. We're on to episode number 54 now. Now, if you listen to episode number 53, you know that I ran through the Aspen and Society of Critical Care Medicine nutrition guidelines, and it seemed like quite a popular download. This is the follow-up to that. I had a conversation with some people at the Intensive Care Society State of the Art 2016. Uh, we, I introduced them during the interview, so I'm not about to do that twice. I do need to make a small apology where we we were in a big echoey room so the sound quality isn't quite how I'd like it however it's perfectly listenable to and there's some real gems of information in there so let's go ahead and listen to the interview I'm just going to introduce everybody first of all obviously Arthur's not here so um, I'm at the Intensive Care Society State of the Art Conference 2016 and we've just had an interesting discussion on day three about Uh, providing nutrition to the intensive care patient and probably more specifically about the um, Aspen and the Society of uh, Critical Care Guidelines. We uh, involved in that discussion and in the room with me at the moment is uh, Todd Rice who's an Associate Professor of Medicine at Vanderbilt University Um, and with me also is uh, Danny or Danielle, which would you prefer? Danny. Danny Bear who's a Principal Critical Care Dietitian at Guy's and St Thomas's. Um, Danny and I have been trying to get together for some time to produce a podcast, but actually it's worked out rather well that I've got a room full of experts, um, which is fantastic. So um, I've been making copious notes about the guidelines. Um, Also on my left at the moment is Roger Harris, um, who's a senior specialist in ICU at the North Shore Hospital, um, and he runs another um, conference, um, I think you may have heard of it, the SMAC conference, uh, which is in uh, Berlin next year. And then to my right, I've got Ella Sigaran, who is, uh, works at the Imperial College uh, Healthcare NHS Trust and is also a senior dietitian. Yes. Okay. Uh, right. So that's the introductions over with. And she's balancing the panel too, Jonathan. So she's balancing the two panel. Two girls and two boys. How Absolutely. good is that? <laughs> I was Farms the, off now. I was the only Brit up until this point, so it's nice to have a bit of, uh, a bit of company. So, Danny, as far as I'm concerned, um, I'm the facilitator to this conversation. Roger and I are going to make nutrition sexy, hopefully. Excellent. Um, Nutrition already is sexy, but if you can make it sexier, we'll be happy with that. Fantastic. Um, And I'm working from, the the slide I think we should work from that you showed was um, the good and the not so good uh, that you produced. Um, So let's talk about um, the guidelines and the good parts of the guidelines. And you've actually got nutrition risk on both sides. Let's talk about the good side, the nutrition risk scoring systems that you've got. And at one point I heard mentioned that we're going to be sending patients for CT scans to be measuring paraspinal muscle mass. um, And we're going to be sending them for ultrasound to to measure all kinds of stuff. Really? So, no, not really. So thank you, Todd Rice, for bringing up the CT and ultrasound. Those are sexy. They are are very sexy as a potential way to uh, look at uh, or to assess patients from a nutritional perspective because they give us some information on muscle mass. Um, Neither of them are ready to use in a clinical setting yet. So I've had this discussion with many people today that I can't see any of us going down to radiology and asking them to export a CT slice from L3 into DICOM format so that we can then put it into ImageJ and analyze it at the bedside. 
not least we also don't know what to do when we have this magic number of muscle mass what do we actually do with it what's the correct intervention uh, and ultrasound is certainly not ready for use at the bedside yet it's not a standardized technique and even if we were to use ultrasound who's going to do the ultrasound because the ultrasonographers it's hard yeah. to get them into itu for other stuff let alone yeah well the positive about ultrasound the positive part of it is that anyone can learn to do it so particularly when it comes even to the measuring dietitian. the dietitian so, even yeah. the dietitians i mean even nurse, the doctor even the doctor, well, more to the point. Yeah, maybe. Doctors, nurses, physios can all learn to do it, but it's more about standardising the technique and making sure we're all doing the same thing, so in that we're the in the same place, so that we're looking, uh, we're getting the right result to know what to do with in the first place. Mm. So let me follow it up with a couple of comments. One is that uh, I think what people like about the nutrition risk part of the guidelines is that it's the beginning of trying to individualise uh, nutrition therapy to critically ill patients which I think is a key for us moving forward. Uh, in the past, we have hammered home the exact same thing for every patient in my ICU. And it's largely fallen on deaf ears because uh, people just aren't that interested in it. They don't find the exact same thing for everybody sexy. Um, but in the nutrition risk is a very crude way of doing it, but it's a, at least the start of trying to individualize it. CT scans, ultrasounds could be the, the next step um, in doing that. I suspect we'll find that they're more facile and we can do them in practice easier. Uh, our radiology guys, if they know that's what you want, will just start reading it mm -hmm. uh, on the CTs. Obviously, the CT has the, the worry about radiation and that sort of stuff. Um, but um, we've started doing a lot of ultrasound uh, and we'll ultrasound muscle. Uh, and although we're not that good at it yet, um, it's something that, as you said, almost anybody can learn and do. And I think we have to get to the point where we show that we can do it, use it, and make decisions based off of it, which we haven't done yet. But once we do that, then I think people will start doing it and realizing that they can do it. And what would be your decision? What would you do if you had, you've measured someone's muscle mass, what are you going to do about it? Um, I think uh, what I would do off of it is figure out um, what, I mean, you know, the, the basic part of it is figure out a risk for that patient. So if the patient has sarcopenia, um, you know, that's a patient that maybe I need to give more protein to. But how do you measure sarcopenia from an ultrasound scan? Well, I think there's work to, no, I think there's work to be yeah. done there, right? Yeah. I think there's Definitely. there's a lot of work to understand yeah. that. Um, so it's a future technique. It's not a technique right to, we should use right now. You're to be devil's advocate, but I mean, I was, in my experience in the unit, the... Uh, the vast majority of patients that you're really interested in this in, they've had a CAT scan. Mm. They've, they've had the CAT scan. So um, they're often the morbidly obese patients. Yeah. And, you know, I think where it's really interesting just for me and it's completely, uh, you know, unsubstantiated, but you go and have a look at those patients and see what their uh, rectus looks like, see what their, uh, you know, psoas looks like on the CAT scan. I mean, it just does reinforced to you and it also gets people I think as Todd said it gets people you know the more technical stuff you can bring to bear the more people are interested in in the topic because at the moment it seems that you know we lack a lot of evidence and we lack of you know we lack a lot of uh, things that will draw people into it so they're more happy to sit there and argue about the chloride content mm. of plasma light versus normal saline yeah. than they are about yeah. 
what's in the nutrition. So I don't disagree. I don't disagree that uh, it may be a useful tool. I disagree that we should be advocating for it to be used as a nutrition assessment now when we don't actually know what it means or how to change it. So I think what we've done a lot in critical care is just think, well, this might work, and we lump all the patients into one very large study that turns out to be negative, and we don't understand what's actually going on and why that might be the case. So my worry with things like ultrasound and CT scan is that particularly with ultrasound, there isn't a standardized method of doing it. So Ella might do muscle depth. I will do rectus femoris cross-sectional area. Ella might measure at three-fifths of the measurement of the thigh. I might do two-thirds. And that might actually end up being a different result. We don't know which one is better or how to fix it. So that's my point is that we don't really know And then know it gets subtle to try and work out, you know, the change in the muscle, whether how much of that could be edema exactly. or other things. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's technically difficult. Yeah. And, I, and I agree with you, like the science has to be good. So yeah. you don't want to roll something out and start advocating it when, um, you know, it's half-baked because that's exactly. going to backfire. And I think we saw that a lot with indirect calorimetry was that, you know, people didn't realise how hard it is to do it well. Uh, Danny, you in your session talked about, you know, how difficult it is to get that measurement. And I'm sure, Ella, you would agree in your unit. It's it's just, it's a hard thing to do. And so people didn't do it well. And then it sort of became a random number generator. And that spoiled things a bit. Yeah. But even, even indirect calorimetry, right, is becoming sexy. In the fact that there are now ventilator companies, yeah. uh, largely in Europe, they're not in America yet, but largely in Europe, that have built it into a ventilator that will do some indirect calorimetry right in the ventilator, right? And again, that's the way, I think, to make nutrition sexy again, make nutrition, uh, you know, have this appeal is now suddenly, instead of having to drag in a, a dinosaur beast that, you know, I can barely tell you where... Love my Delta truck. Yeah, where it's, you know, accumulating dust. Yeah. Uh, now I do it right on the ventilator. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, yes. I mean, you know, it's that stuff that's yeah. going to, I think, advance. Yes, but nutrition has to be sexy and accurate. And I might debate that some of those are, are well, accurate have, or precise. You have way more experience with those than I do. Yeah. I, you know, there are things I I feel like I'm sounding very negative, but what right. I, I don't want is for nutrition. No, people to, to think nutrition is not important. And this is what happens when we just go... Yeah. Go for it and just you it's know do a thing without thinking about it. Yeah, because if it gives you a reading at five thousand calories, are you going to feed me yeah. five thousand calories? Of course I will. Well. <laughs> okay, because you're then not a dietitian, Todd. Let's bring it back a little bit. That's the future. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about because I think a lot of my listeners are going to be interested in yes. what we do now. Because in me and the intensive care unit, the nutritionist comes along. I'm busy doing lots of other things. She writes lots of things down on a paper, uh, gets a calculator out, punches a few buttons and says, right, you deliver this at this rate for this many hours of the day, away you go. I just want to unravel the mysteries of that a little bit for the people out there that don't understand what that process is all about. So what nutrition risk score are we using now commonly in this country? We can talk about internationally as well, but for now in the UK. Yeah, so we don't use a nutrition risk score in this country as defined by Darren Hayland and his definition of nutrition risk, which is determining which patients will benefit more from aggressive nutrition support and which patients may be harmed from aggressive nutrition support, if we think that they may be harmed. Uh, we use a malnutrition risk tool, which is that they're different things. So the most common one in the UK is the MUST screening tool, um, which is developed by Baypen. And that's used because uh, at the moment, nutrition malnutrition risk screening in the UK is mandatory. 
so we need a tool to use in the UK. I don't do it in my ICU because actually every single patient in the ICU using the must screening tool comes out as a high malnutrition risk. And that's that's a very different thing. I Ella, do you we use the agree with that? Risk score. Yeah. Everybody gets a score over three, so everybody who comes through ICU would automatically be high risk. Yeah. Which isn't the case. And it's I think the the nutrient score, although the concept is great practically, unless you have an electronic medical note system that is going to calculate an Apache two and a SOFA score for you, it's actually not practical to use mm. at the bedside. So I find you need to understand the principles of what would give you a high score yeah. in those and then apply those principles when assessing your patient. Mm -hmm. But that requires skill yeah. and expertise, which... Such as a dietitian. Such as a dietitian, not a nutritionist. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let me... Can I ask a question? Yes, of course. Um, to the two dietitians in the room, not nutritionists. Thank you. <laughs> Where in that whole process does um, the patient's acute illness come in? And what I mean by that is is that you know we do all kinds of fancy uh, additional calculations for the patient that has renal failure or for the patient that you know has obesity or for the patient that um, you know has developing liver dysfunction, uh, you know pancreatitis, blah 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 blah. And none of that is in any of the nutrition risk scores, but it clearly gets built into um, the recommendations. Mm -hmm. um, and so how do you how do you play that into you know your, your uh, assessment, your calculation here? So do you mean acuity of illness or different types of clinical conditions? Because uh, acuity of illness is there with Apache too. Yeah, some, although, yeah. Um, and maybe it's different uh, in my institution, but in my institution there's these factors that are brought in for you know, the so patient got has cancer, shock. Got pancreatitis, right, yeah. burns, burns, yeah. burns yeah. right, you yeah. know. Kidney failure. Well, I think there are a certain group of patients that I would probably consider high nutrition risk from the outset, whatever their clinical condition is. And they are probably patients who are obese because we often have the mindset that they're fine and we don't need to feed them. But actually, that true is opposite. So I would classify them as high nutrition risk simply because we don't feed them very well. And the second group would be, I don't work with burns patients, but I would think burns patients would automatically be high nutrition risk from the outset. Um, Ella, what would you agree with that? Yes. But I'm, I work in a trauma centre, so we have lots of young males who come in with head injuries and lots of broken bones. And you, historically, we were taught that they were the ones that had really high requirements. But actually, when you look at how much, you know, the mechanical ventilation status and various different other things, they're not actually as sick as perhaps somebody with severe sepsis and ARDS. And I'm finding that they're the ones that seem to waste much more rapidly than my head injury patients, which were fit and well two hours before they came into ICU. So I'm taking more the ICU management into consideration rather than the disease state. Yeah, and this, you, you know, I think what we're talking about is, you know, clinical scenario, and this is where the dietitian and, and the intensivist at the end of the bed looking at a patient is so important because uh, a, a young, fit guy with a head injury that's in an induced coma because of high intracranial pressure, mm -hmm. I mean, if you put the metabolic card on them, they're yeah. burning nothing. Yeah. You know, they can be burning 1,000 calories or less, easy. But if you uh, read a textbook, it will tell you that they're hypermetabolic 
and they need double. Which is, but it's completely different patient to the patient, a multiply injured patient, um, you know, with multiple long bone fractures. There they can be quite hypermetabolic, you know. But if you're paralyzing them and they're doing sure, that's damn, it's sort of countering that. Yeah, and we're constantly trying to do that. And this is, this is exactly the conversation that we have as nutritionists, this interests me, but it doesn't seem to happen around the bedside with other people, you know, which staggers me because, you know, sorry to come back to the fluid analogy, but we sit there and we look at the heart and how wet the lungs are and what the fluid balance is like and then we decide about the fluid and then we're happy just to prescribe 25 kilocalories per kilo per day for nutrition and we think we've done a good job. Thanks. We discuss it in my ICU quite frequently with the medical team and the nursing team get involved because I feel from my point of view I can't do my job very well if I don't talk with my consultant and mm. understand what is actually going on with the patient. You go on a ward round? We don't do the ward rounds um, but we do, I don't feel that's a very useful, a very good use of my time but we do do the handover every morning okay. and once a week we have a, what we call a um, MDT ward rounds where the whole MDT is there and we talk about the long-stay patients and that's to make us compliant with the NICE rehabilitation rehabilitation guidelines for critical illness um, and that's where we discuss longer-term patients. But I don't wait until that meeting no. to talk to the consultant. If I need to discuss a patient, then we do it mm. at the bedside. Okay. Um, let's move on to early feeding because that's another good on your slide. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started in intensive care, early feeding was a bit of a no-no, really. You didn't start feeding anybody for three, four, five days. Um, what, what do the guidelines say about that now and, and why, why is that changing? Mm-hmm. Shall I answer that? Well, the guidelines suggest early feeding within 24 to 48 hours of admission to ICU for patients who are not going to be managing oral intake uh, and that that should be enteral over parental nutrition. Uh, The evidence for that, I think Todd will agree, is probably minimal uh, that supports it, but we like enteral nutrition over parental nutrition for the non-nutritional benefits as well as the nutritional benefits. Can so, you talk about those a little? Uh, so in terms of uh, maintaining gut integrity, um, immune response, what else have we got on your list, Todd, that came out today? You did have a lovely slide. Uh, I love this slide. Um, yeah. There's um, maintaining gut integrity, there's yeah. immune response, yeah. there's metabolic response, yeah. so you get um, better insulin sensitivity. Um, better insulin secretion, um, and then obviously as you get higher doses of enteral nutrition, you get this sort of um, um, you know protein synthesis, uh, nutrition, calorie um, effects of it. Okay. I, I think we I think we don't have very good efficacy data for early feeding. Uh, I think we've um, started to get safety data, and we now have better data that we can do it safely. I think before, we always were kind of scared that that patient was too unstable, we couldn't feed them, you know, that sort of stuff. And I think now we have data that we can do it safely. Uh, We need efficacy data that that demonstrate that it's better to do that. Um, Okay. Um, Sorry, I'm just working my way through the slides here. I can edit this anyway, so any pauses in between. Um, I've now moved away from the slide that I was referring to, so just bear with me a second. Um, what, let's, in the meantime, while I'm searching through my slides, let's talk about one of the things that I noticed on this, and I have worked through this in quite some depth, but one of the things that keeps coming up 
um, constantly is quality of evidence. Uh, at the end of each paragraph, quality of evidence. Very low, very low, low to very low. Um, Welcome to intensive care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not just nutrition. No. I don't really know what you all are talking about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, but there's an acknowledgement um, by the document itself that some of the quality of evidence, and I think we've said it several times already about some of the things we're talking about, that a lot of it isn't that well evidence-based, but it's a process we move forward with. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so Danny and I have talked about this some yesterday even. Um, the quality of evidence is still low. Um, but 10 years ago, there, the quality of evidence was almost non-existent. Right. Uh, and you know, we've made pretty good strides in the last 10 years of doing pretty high-quality studies um, in critical care nutrition, um, which has been a big push, and we're getting studies into high impact journals. Um, so you're seeing nutrition, critical care nutrition studies in the New England Journal yeah, yeah. or in JAMA or you know the Lancet or that sort of stuff. Um, and, and so that's that's encouraging that we're getting there. Um, unfortunately for us, many of those trials have um, gone against what many of us believed, and so we've had to figure out you know how to interpret those, what they mean. Um, and we're learning that critical care nutrition is a lot more complex than any of us ever thought it was. Absolutely. And I would just like to add to that also that there is so much conflicting data in nutrition in critical illness, probably, I don't know if it's more than anywhere else, but it's certainly very conflicting. But what isn't helpful is everyone having a different opinion. Mm. So I would much prefer there to be a guideline that is mostly based on expert opinion, where you know that a group of experts in the room have come to that conclusion. I might make my own decision at the bedside because I feel like I'm an expert, but that's a very, very good starting point because it's not helpful when you're in a a room or you've got a load of papers in front of you that all say something different and not know what to do. So Mm. even though the evidence is low or a lot of it is expert opinion, that's a very helpful starting point. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really agree with that, and I think it's important to remember when we're worrying about that evidence. I mean, look at something that we all do every day, like oxygen, you know, and how much lack of evidence there is around what we're doing. In fact, the signal's coming through now that, you know, we shouldn't be doing oxygen uh, for so many patients, that we, you know, we're killing patients with too much oxygen. So, uh, you know, I think it is what it is, and at least, as you say, the guidelines come out, I really like the fact that the evidence has been graded and they've done their best to give an opinion based around what's there because it is a starting point. Yeah, okay. Um, it also highlights real quickly um, where the level of the evidence is. Yes. So we sat you know, on a conference call and talked about enteral nutrition versus parenteral nutrition and we all strongly believe we should do enteral nutrition. And then they sent us the meta-analysis and the evidence and it was like, whoa, wait a minute, the evidence for this, you know, we all have a really strong belief about this, but the evidence for this is really not very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it kind of sets the, the foundation of, you know, the, this is where we are at with the evidence and we need to do better. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm a nurse by background. I started my intensive career back in 1996. Um, and uh, every two to three to four hours, I got a big syringe, stuck it on the end of the NG tube, and pulled out all this gunk out of the patient's stomach. It's a rite of passage. Yes. Yep. It stunk. It wasn't very pleasant. Um, and then um, we used to, when I started, we'd discard that. That would then get thrown away. Uh, and then we'd rest them, and then we'd feed them again. But then we got the pleasure of actually then pulling it all back up into a syringe, sticking it back down the NG tube. Gastric residual volumes, yes or no? No. Shall we vote? Go for it. 
Yes, depending on the patient group, with some caveats. Oh my goodness. Uh, no, uh, and I don't have any caveats. It's, it's so when you say, I'll come back to you in a minute, Danny, I think you said no as well. I said no. You? No, never, ever. So the only, the only time that uh, I have my nurses do it is if there's another sign of intolerance. Yeah. So if your patient has abdominal distension or yeah. if a patient has vomited, yeah. a residual volume may help me know what my next action should be at that point. Okay. But the standing at the bedside every two hours, every four hours, every six hours doing it uh, is a no for us. So from your point of view, if the patient's got no other signs, there's no need to ever aspirate Correct. that NG tube. Okay. There's somebody in the room that doesn't agree. Yes. <laughs> surprise, surprise. So I have multiple issues with the not measuring GRVs. Now I understand that the measurement of gastric residual volume isn't a very accurate measurement. There are so many factors that can make it inaccurate. And I also understand that historically it's, it was, it's not evidence-based. It was done as a, a way to try and prevent a patient getting ventilator-associated pneumonia, which we know actually doesn't matter what level your GRV is, you, you'll get ventilator-associated pneumonia anyway if you're going to get it. So the way that GRVs, I think, should be used is not to prevent ventilator-associated pneumonia, but to work out what your next action is for the patient. So should you be using uh, prokinetics? Should you be putting a post-pyloric feeding tube in? Does the patient need PN? And in my view, sometimes, well, not every patient is going to display abdominal symptoms. So not all of them are going to have a distended abdomen. Not all of them are going to vomit, yet it's a problem that, that there is an issue. And sometimes the, the first way you work that out is from a high GRV. Uh, we have a lot of surgical patients in our ICU, um, and yeah, I wouldn't be comfortable not measuring a GRV in those patients. And I would also say that, of course, nurses, and you're very experienced in this, Jonathan, nurses don't like aspirating the tube and they don't like putting it back in, but I would also suggest they don't like cleaning a patient who's vomited multiple times in that day. You know, the joys of being an ITU nurse. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But actually, you, I don't think the size of the gastric residual volume correlates very well with who's going to vomit. Um, it doesn't. You know, we've had little patients who've had aspirates of 500 mils consistently and tolerated <laughs> feed well, and we've been able to continue feeding them. And then people with 20 mils, and then two hours later, they do a huge vomit. So Yeah, and that's very true, but patients in the, the Ranier study, they did, more patients vomited, quite a lot of patients vomited, actually, in the, uh, the group who didn't have their GRVs measured. Okay. Let me, can I, let me ask Danny really quickly, when yes. you do your GRVs, do you make the patient have two before you call it a positive GRV? Three. Three. Yeah, so we don't do anything for the first one. Yeah. Uh, we start prokinetics on the second one, and we don't do anything with the feed until the third one. Okay. So we'll move on from gastric residual volumes. I can tell you in my intensive care that they're still doing it. I've just persuaded them to go up to a volume of 500. They were still doing it at 200 to 250. So we've moved that forward a little. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's I'll, a process. <laughs> we'll, we'll move the next stage. I'll, I'll give them time to absorb that first because that was a bit of a culture shock. Yeah. Pardon the pun. So let's talk about parenteral nutrition. TPN was hung up on patients all the time, five to ten years ago. You'd see it regularly in ITU. Probably 50% of the patients that I came across in ITU had TPN bags hanging up. That's much less so now. Why are we seeing that less often than we used to? What's the thinking now as far as parenteral nutrition as opposed to enteral nutrition? Is enteral nutrition something that we prefer to do as much as we can and 
parental nutrition is to be avoided at all costs, or is that the balance is wrong there? Whoever, Todd. Um, so um, I'm just thinking of how I navigate this because um, what the guidelines say are different than what I do in practice for parental nutrition. Okay. Uh, I'm a, a fairly nihilist with parental nutrition, and I use very, very little of it. Um, uh, to me, uh, parental nutrition seems like a failure of me delivering enteral nutrition, um, and so I beat enteral nutrition up before I go to parental nutrition. Um, Says he who trophic feeds his patients for multiple days in a row. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will, but if you if you make it to a week and I can't get you to goal feeds at a week, I'm starting to think about you know parental nutrition. Um, there are very, very, very few patients that I put PN on um, from the outset. Um, and it turns out, now I work in a largely medical ICU, but it turns out that we can provide enteral nutrition to almost anybody you send me. Um, our BMT team comes down with PN. Um, they're using PN upstairs in the bone marrow transplants, and they get mad at me because I stop their PN, I put an NG tube in or an OG tube in, and I feed them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they argue with me about mucositis and all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff that I clearly don't care about. Uh, and those patients tolerate feeds well. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a little bit of an outlier, I think, because I, I use very little PN. I think the PN data <clears throat> suggests that it's safe to use. It's still more expensive than EN. It still requires a central line and access that at least on my side of the ocean, we're doing a lot less central lines. So it's not that the patient already has one, we're just gonna start one. We often are like, if we're gonna start PN, we need to do a central line. Um, and um, so it still has its downsides, but I think the data suggests that if we're going to, if we really think we need to use it, we can do it safely now. And also I liked your point in your presentation earlier where you said it's safe for five days if you slightly um, hypercalorically feed the patient. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is key. You, you do need to monitor them quite carefully. For people who don't follow nutrition, you know, carefully, the, the historical change from what you described, Jonathan, was that originally we had the Christmas tree components. Remember, you know, we, we'd have the lipid two or three times a yeah. week in a separate bottle. Yeah. And we had the synthamine. And, and, I mean, it was great to actually, again, engage the medical team, the residents and the intensivists, because, you know, you had to actually prescribe the parental nutrition. It wasn't 80 mils an hour. Um, there, that, there was a time when we, we got the big bag delivered and we had the, the little vials and we were adding yeah. things oh to the vials and yeah. breaking so the bag. And, and then we wonder why they had yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So that, since that time, I think, you know, in terms of infection, that's a big difference. The way we deal with our central line care per se has mm-hmm. evolved massively, even just in the last five years. And, of course, glycemic controls changed a lot. So just, you know, when we're talking about these things, we really have to be mindful of those massive historical changes that have happened in this decade. Yeah. Okay, I've got one question for you, and then we can wind it up. Um, There's a question from uh, Jamie Strachan, who was um, the moderator in your session, and he said to me to ask, uh, in an emergency laparotomy patients with no contraindications to enteral nutrition, um, they get one to three days of parenteral nutrition post-op, which is stopped quickly when enteral nutrition works. Is that acceptable or wrong? I would always try and enterally feed those patients. I mean, we see a, we are a mixed medical surgical ICU. We do a lot of GI surgery, particularly colorectal surgery, um, and we would for sure try and enterally feed everyone at least. I think, but that is a very common problem, and it comes from the surgeons. 
And you entry and feed them straight away? We would try to, yeah. And right. what rate are you using? Well, I'd start, we, well, we'd start at 30 mils an hour because that's what our you're, protocol you're going, says. You're doing full though. Yeah, we would aim for target. If we can meet target, we would aim for it. It's not always possible, but we would always try and... and so another it. place where we've made headway with our surgeons because um, um, they will let us do trophic feeds in those patients, for sure, uh, and may even now have some belief that trophic feeds may help their anastomosis mm-hmm. and help blood flow and all that. Just to clarify from my point of view, yeah. trophic feed, what volume are you talking about? We're, talk, we're doing 10 cc's an hour. Right, so... It's, Minimum milliliters, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, some people will say do twenty, but yeah. it's ten to twenty milliliters an hour, okay. uh, hanging it and just running it essentially. And this uh, is protecting the gut rather than feeding them, isn't it? Yeah. You, you, you yeah. said to feed the gut. I think is an expression you use. Right. Isn't it? That's that's what you mean by yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know there are some data in the surgical literature that that increases blood flow to the gut, mm-hmm. um, and it increases this lymph tissue, and it increases this, and it it may help with anastomoses and help their healing and that sort of thing. And our surgeons have bought into that, so they would be really anxious if we tried to do goal on day one, but they'd let us do trophic um, on day one, and then day two, it's kind of trophic plus, and then day three, we're, we're moving to goal rates on day three because and I think they've this, already tolerated trophic for two days. This needs to form part of a nutrition assessment by whoever's doing it, is having your surgeon on speed dial, because sometimes they don't come back with enough information for you to make a decision about whether or not it's appropriate to get to goal enteral feeding on day one and a conversation with your surgeon about what they did and what the state of the rest of their bowel is like is actually very helpful because sometimes I'll look at the surgical notes and go, oh, I don't understand why they want parental nutrition for this patient. And then you speak to them and you're like, okay, I've got it. I get it now. This patient shouldn't be entirely fed or they should only get trophic feeding. So I think that should form part of a nutrition assessment. Okay. I I think, can I just jump in there with one thing that I think is always interesting and it certainly was the take, I guess, that's been put on that Epinec trial to some extent is is a couple of million years of evolution has meant that when we feel sick, we don't, we're not hungry, we're anorexic. And you've got to ask yourself why the hell that's happening, you know. And uh, I think there probably some there is something to this concept of, of uh, autophagy and as being, a, as being an important protective mechanism. The trouble is, is that evolution didn't factor in ventilation and ECMO and dialysis. You know, you either died in two or three days in the cave from the saber-toothed tiger attack or you didn't. And, you know, I guess we've, we've got to sort of try and work out how we plug this ancient uh, cellular response into a modern-day yeah. intensive care. You know, it's yeah. quite tricky. Yeah. I mean, it's exciting and it's certainly sexy. You know, yes. and you start talking about autophagy and Roger all those things. Sexy. You've suddenly got the well, intensity. I've convinced you, Roger. We've turned yeah. you around. Add, 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 in, add in the, add in the uh, you know, a few physiological equations yeah. measuring, yeah. you know, respiratory growth no, and everything, and I almost need to lie down. Yeah. Yes. Can I add one more thing onto that about autophagy and... I think what's really key is that we are really moving towards looking at outcomes of muscle mass and quality of life and function. And of course, in, from the Epinex study, they suggest that late supplemental parental nutrition is better for mus- improving muscle weakness and recovery. The problem is we don't really understand that all very well. Mm-hmm. And in Epinex was, they said, day eight for supplemental parental nutrition. But what if we need to feed the patients earlier? Uh, for improvements in their muscle mass and function and it really is up to us to look at that because Mm. we know that patients that muscle wasting leads to worse outcomes longer term for the patients and the patients tell us that's a problem so it isn't good enough for us to say 
this is what happens in evolution. Yeah. When I'm sick, I don't want to eat. It, that isn't good enough because no. we know it's a problem for the patient. It's a massively complex equation though, isn't it? You're, you're looking at a scenario, just you need to know what your patient's like. I mean, if we're talking about this post-op laparotomy, you know, is this a little sparrow yeah. that weighs 40 kilos yeah. or is this a footballer yeah. that's, uh, you know, what what's that context? And then what state of the illness are they in? Are they in a hyper-acute inflammatory state where maybe giving them a whole lot of glucose is not a great idea. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, and then we, we know that they're going to be having obligatory mm-hmm. proteolysis during this. And we can't just let that go unchecked because exactly. we know the outcome of that. Yeah. So this so is why nutrition comes down sexy. to a nutrition assessment. Absolutely. Exactly. And having the right professionals and around. And a team approach. Which brings us full circle <laughs> to the beginning of the dis- discussion. So I think we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. I think we could talk for a lot longer about we this. Uh, it's an ongoing discussion. It's an ongoing issue. And I, I will um, echo what Roger said in his presentation, that the Aspen guidelines um, that have just uh, come out, 2016, not enough people know about them. Um, yeah. I got a similar response in my ITU when I said the new guidelines, a very quizzical look. Um, and the new guidelines, again, uh, published in 2016 from data in 2013, which is something you said, Danny. So the new guidelines are very relevant, but we need to keep moving forward with it as well. And I think that's something that we're doing and making good progress for our patients who evolutionarily aren't used to being as sick as when we're allowing them to be. Uh, and we have to play catch up and deal with those consequences. So, Danny, thank you. Todd, thank you very much. Um, Ella, thank you. And Roger, thank you very much. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. Nice. Okay, excellent. Very good conversation to be had between um, the four of us there. I think we covered a lot of points. I think we covered a lot of the guidelines as well. And as you can tell, there are a lot of contentious issues in there and they are to be read as guidelines, as I've said many times before. So that's enough of that. What else is happening? Okay, I'm going to the Critical Care Symposium in Manchester in April. Uh, Variparan has asked me to attend there and talk about social media and talk about advanced critical care practitioners, both of which I'm happy to do. So if you are going, tap me on the shoulder and say hello. If you're not, then hopefully I will be releasing some of the presentations from that conference over the year on the Critical Care Symposium podcast feed in iTunes. So look for it there as well. Smack in June, very much looking forward to that. And also the Advanced Critical Care Practitioner Conference, which is also in June. So a lot coming up. I'm loving my job now at Warwick Hospital. There's lots of things happening there. It's been a very busy little unit over the winter. Okay, there's only seven beds, but those beds have been very full and we have been very busy. They're wonderful staff there, wonderful doctors. It's a great place to work and I'm really enjoying it. I hope you're all doing well and I hope you enjoy continuing listening to my offerings and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, Find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk Tweet us at ccpractitioner Find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner Or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes <laughs>